Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Welcome, Julia. Welcome, Liz, to the Untoxicated Podcast. We're so glad to have both of you joining Sherry and I today. It's nice to see you. We're talking about some pretty heavy topics today that really impact from different angles. Most people, I would say, that are are in an alcoholic marriage or trying to recover from an alcoholic marriage. And so one of the things that's really cool about this discussion, I hope, potentially, Sherry, is that um, there are areas where we agree and we've found some universalisms. But there are areas where our experiences diverge, and that's super cool, too, because I think between the three couples that are involved here, there are three different experiences. And uh, if you're listening, you're going to relate to one of us anyway, maybe multiple, who knows. But let's, let's, let's dive right in and go to you first, Liz, um, or pardon me, God, I suck at this. Um, we're going we're gonna to go to Julia first. Sorry. Um, the, the topic that I just want to throw your way and have you speak to is what comes first, safety or connection in a relationship? Can you talk a little bit about that? You've got some profound things that you've shared with us and we want you to share them with our listeners. Sure. Um, I think at least my generation and many of the generations Um, We think that the connection comes first because that's what we're sold and the safety is implied. Um, But that's, that's just not how it turns out. And so we think that if we have this intense connection with another human, that that is a safe place. And what I have found through going through this process of addiction and, and trying to find safety in it, it, it's really, it's really hard when you have this expectation that you put on this person, that they create safety for you and they are everything but. And so you go through, or I went through this struggle of how do I find safety when it's not at home. And then where's our connection if I don't feel safe because being connected to another human when you're also threatened by them is a, it screws with your head, right? And then you go and go through this like cycle of trying to figure out um, what, what needs to happen first because an addict will be screaming that they need warmth and care and love and you don't help me enough and you don't support me and you're going, well, you're unsafe, unsupportive, threatening. Um, You're not even here. And so you're both screaming for different things. And um, it got to a point where I'm not willing to sacrifice the safety first. But that back and forth has gone on for a very long time. I think it's important that we highlight how profoundly 
unnatural what you're talking about is. I mean, when you get into a relationship that turns into marriage, there is, you know, certainly the relationship between a parent and a child is completely different. But other than that relationship, there there's no other relationship that you will probably be in in your lifetime where there is more of an expectation that you're there to protect each other. I mean, it's right there in the vows, right? So, I mean, if I've got a coworker and that coworker does something bad to me, or I've got a neighbor who lets his dog poop on my lawn or, you know, whatever, that's just a neighbor. It's just a coworker. You know, I, I have no um, bond with this person. I have no commitment made with this person. So if they stab me in the back, yeah, that sucks, but kind of whatever. The person that's making you feel unsafe is the person that is most committed to your protection of any person in the world. And I say this as someone who became unsafe for my wife after I promised to, you know, and, and I've gone on and on about the wedding vows, the traditional wedding vows and how much I don't like them. We didn't have the traditional ones because we no, they were not complaining. I'm not surprised. But yes, we didn't have all of the traditional <laughs> wedding vows. Oh, goodness sakes. I I don't even know if you remember our wedding. <laughs> you were probably wedding, pretty loaded. Well, it's a story for another day, but our wedding yeah. is very chaotic. Because I thought they were very archaic in a lot of ways. Like they just didn't make sense. And that whole protection thing, I think, is an implied. That, well, that's the point. Right? Yeah. Whether it's specifically spoken or not, I got your back and you got mine. Mm-hmm. more than anybody else it used to be my parents but they left i left them and now it's you and it's me mm-hmm. and we're in this together and that person that you're in this together bonded to you're gonna potentially have kids with maybe you do maybe you don't you probably own a home with you've got all these other ways that you're tied together that person that's the most important besides yourself for protecting you now becomes unsafe i mean that is that is huge and i think for us alcoholics we downplay that so much. We don't recognize how harmful that is that we have become unsafe for the person that we're supposed to be protecting and that that's going to have lasting impact. I mean, we think, yeah, I got sober. Everything's fine now. You know, why, why aren't we back being close? Well, <laughs> you know, your protector, and I, I'm not trying to be patriarchal. I'm not trying to be, you know, misogynistic. Um, we both protect each other, right? It doesn't matter who the male, who the female is. But that person that is supposed to be there to protect you is now unsafe. And that is, I mean, that is just yeah, unbelievably diabolical. Yeah, and, you're a wingman. And a lot of the times you were not there. You were not the person I could count on for, you know, anything in a lot of ways. So, Julia, I, I want to hear from you. One of the th- strategies, I guess, tactics that you tried was, okay, this person is unsafe to me, but I recognize the importance of connection in a relationship. Maybe I'll sacrifice the fact that I don't feel safe and I'll give the connection. What were you, what were you hoping the result would be? Were you hoping safety would grow out of that or something would grow out of that? Or was it just guilt? I've got to give connection. How did you feel about that? My gut reaction is that I would show him or have him see the worth of the connection and he would stop doing the thing that was 
you know, sabotaging the relationship. Like if I can just show him how good this could be, or if I can just show him how much I care, then, you know, whatever's hurting him can be healed. And it it really was like my method of trying to control the uncontrollable and thinking that I could heal it with my love, attention, and touch. And let, let's back up because you, you came by that idea very honestly. You learned that just from being a female in our society, right? The messages from going way back um, taught you that maybe by giving that, you could get the relationship that you were hoping for. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I, I went back through this like in therapy and I don't know if any, any other like little girls had this experience, but teachers used me as the very like behaved calm child to sit next to crazy uncontrollable boys. And it almost like ingrained in me that I had this ability to make them do the right thing with my attention or it was my job like that was my purpose and you know now I see that as like ew yuck but like I think I had that belief for a very long time as like I would date these men who boys who had some kind of out of control behavior and I'd be like oh they just need more love or they just need more attention or guidance and like never did I think that that was a messed up thought, right? Like that's, that's truly like the depth of my codependency, but I felt like I was trained to do that. And so when someone said, you can't control that, I'd be like, you don't know me, right? Like, <laughs> but, but now I, now I see it, but I think a lot of us are trained up in that. And then if you go through motherhood, like, your body attention, everything goes to giving to this person and you see the result immediately. So it's, it's very difficult to separate like that power. And then I can't put that power on my husband. It's two different things. Well, the, the messages, the lessons that you learned, you know, that might be somewhat unique, although I know that that was something our daughter experienced a lot too. She was always the, the kind of calming partner or friend, you know, this, this kid's having trouble, go help this kid. It wasn't always a boy necessarily. Um, but, but we just, we felt like she had always befriended the, the kids that had trouble at home and, and there was lots going on. So some people certainly can relate to that. But I think before you get to your marriage and motherhood, the message continued, right? I mean, as you went along in late adolescence and early adulthood, you continued to learn that if you showed attention to boys, they could, you know, you would get what you wanted. And, and I know that's something that you experienced as well, Sherry. Is that, am I representing that right? As the, as the one male on the call, I don't want to overrepresent that. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I think for me, when we're talking about it in this way, it was a little bit different. Sex was transactional 
but I feel like it was a little bit different because I think sometimes when I was growing up, um, my mom was a single mom and sometimes she would need, you know, a hug. And so like, I knew that me giving her a hug would make her feel better, you know? So I feel like Jane, that I had a power that I could help somebody feel better. And I know like from parenting books and stuff that like, you never use your child for an emotional, you know, um, safe place. But, you know, my mom was just trying to cope with being a single mom and having a wild older daughter. And my father was an alcoholic. So I knew that to be the good girl and, you know, be nice to my mom and show her affection and do the things that she asked, like I learned even in that relationship. So you learned that it was best to do that because that helped her. You learned that physical touch was soothing to people, even if it wasn't necessarily um, a male female right. relationship. Right. I think they're, you know, cause we know those love languages and physical touch is one of them. So even just, you know, a hug or, but then you carried that into becoming an adult and, mm-hmm. and so- soothing people or, um, gaining favor with people through physical touch. And in that case, it was, it was mostly boys and young men, right? Yeah. And then I fast forward to our relationship where, you know, you would be sad or you're upset or a bad day, you know, and then it just carries on. Yeah. You found a way to soothe that. I would, uh, I would say I, I learned the exact same thing, but mine, it was acts of service. So like, even with the, as a younger, like teenage person, like I would help them get something they were, they needed or struggled with, or I would make things for them or like show those like, uh, gifts and attention of doing mine was doing how I was brought up. Um, but it's the same thing, right? Just play a sacrifice of yourself. Yeah. Sacrifice of yourself for the benefit of others, which there's nothing wrong with that, you know, until alcohol or some kind of addiction enters the picture and it becomes the ask becomes overwhelming, right? Especially when the person that's asking as we, you know, come full circle on this is becomes a, not a safe, a, not a safe place. There's certainly relationships unrelated to addiction where one person gives more than the other person. And one person asks more than the other person. So in uh, out of balance relationship, I don't think by any means requires addiction, but when the person that's doing the asking or the person that's receiving those acts of service or the touch or whatever the love language is, is it has done things to break the trust. And cause we want to be real clear when we're talking about safety, you know, sometimes that's physical safety, certainly concern about physical safety, but sometimes it's, you know, I'm getting lied to five times a week or I can't believe anything this person says. So I don't trust them anymore. So I think that lack of safety is kind of an umbrella term to cover a a lot of things, but, but they're all things that should be expected and that are, um, you know, well within reason in a committed romantic relationship, you should expect these things that are safety. Some of them, when we discussed this recently on one of our echoes of recovery video calls, someone dove in pretty deep into the finance, you know, area, they didn't feel financially safe because 
the person that they were tied to was making all kinds of bad decisions. And I think maybe had some legal issues as well. And boy, the, the financial impact gets big when you, when you start to add all that up. And so it's, it's safe. Safety can be different things to different people. It's not just, you know, physical harm. Um, but it is, it's something that's reasonable to expect. And when it's not there, um, and you're still doing the thing or the things, whatever the things are to create the connection, it's totally unfeeling it. I mean, let's just kind of highlight this, Julia. It, it just feels icky, right? I mean, you just feel bad about yourself for giving in and doing these things. Is that right? Yeah. And, you know, it, honestly, I, I give with an expectation a lot, especially in this scenario, because, you know, it's hard. I'm giving on top of what I, nothing left, I'm giving on top of it. And so I do give with an expectation. Um, that I get some kind of, you know, response that I want out of it. And, you know, being continuously disappointed after giving from nothing, it's, it's really exhausting and heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Liz, I'd love to bring you into the discussion and you said something to us earlier this week that really has stuck with me and I'm hoping you can share it with our audience. Talk a little bit about how two people in a relationship where alcohol is involved can see the relationship so differently. This was kind of profound for me when you shared it. Yeah, I um I I I've been thinking about this a lot and kind of my thoughts are sort of constantly evolving. And I think it kind of goes back to your question where you talk about which is first safety or connection. But that that question itself implies that it's kind of like everything's moving in one direction. And once it moves in that direction, it kind of ratchets forward and there's no going back and everything's going in the same way. And what I what I think it what I've sort of come to realize is the relationship that there's three of you, first of all, in the relationship, there's each of you. And then this relationship you build in between you. And I think if people don't think about the relationship as a third entity, I think it, or maybe, maybe not if you don't think of it that way, but if you do think of it as a third entity, it can actually depersonalize some of these things about your, you're not giving me what I need or whatever. It's like, you know, we both need to build this thing in the middle. It's like a bridge we need to build. And I've been thinking it's it's kind of like the game of um, shoots and ladders or snakes and ladders, depending on where you come from, what it's called. You know, you go up and then you can go down a slide and go back and there's a ladder and sometimes you can go up, but it's not just one direction, you know, it's in, so you can't assume that, just because we've been together, you know, for a certain amount of time, then everything is, can be taken for granted. And one of the things that struck me in the conversations we've been having recently is one of the key things that gets taken for granted, and this comes back to the issue of safety, is consent. You know, we are married. I therefore have your consent to touch you. I have your consent to use you as an anchor. You know, I have your consent for all of these things. But if the trust has been eroded, if the feeling of safety has been eroded, assuming that it's there, and and that's kind of something I want to come back to, because I think I sort of came into everything with an assumption that safety just isn't 
a possibility. I mean, that was because of my childhood, you know, like safety is something I, 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 I was always, you know, sort of looking out for myself kind of thing. Um, which isn't very good for building trust either, of course, and gets felt by the other person. Um, you know, as you, you talked about inherent rejections in some of our earlier conversations, Matt. But anyhow, to go back to this idea of, you know, when when you meet somebody and you go on a first date, you know, I mean, obviously you're not assuming that perfect person's safe. Actually, the contrary, you know, usually we go okay, have a first date in a public place and all of this. So you're assuming the person is unsafe. But if the evening goes well, there might be some sort of connection. And then if you go on, you know, that connection may eventually lead you to start feeling safe with that person because over time the trust builds up and everything. And then, as you say, one day you end up, you know, in a long-term relationship, a marriage or whatever. And, you know, a reasonable expectation of that is that it's a place of some safety and trust and all of that. But if something happens that erodes that trust, you can't just deal with the crisis and then start from that point and go forward as if you haven't slipped back down this giant, this giant slide. And I think, you know, from the conversations we've been having, I think what happens is one person is conscious of having slid down that slide and the other person thinks they're at the top of it. And they can't go forward together from that place because they're literally not in the same place at that point in time. And so the one person, for example, you know, thinks they have the consent to use the other person, you know, for their comfort or whatever, and they don't because they've actually lost that consent. So, you know, it's this idea that it's it's dynamic and and if it isn't made explicit, I think it probably makes it even worse because if you can bring it to the fore and talk about it and at least be aware of it, then you can start to deal with it. But I'm guessing that most people don't even realize that that's where they are. Well, I think in many cases, if you do bring it to the fore and try to talk about it, and and by the way, the shoots and ladders analogy that is so perfect that's as good as an analogy as there is snakes and ladders where on earth is that the game i've never heard that that's crazy but um but the shoots and ladders a, a, I'm a with regional you. a regional variation of it that's hilarious but okay so let's assume that everyone can relate to either shoots and ladders or snakes and ladders uh that's that's perfect if if you as the one that has slid down the one of the shoots tries to bring that to the fore and have that conversation with the person who still feels like they're in that place where consent is implied and we've got this bond and the trust is still intact. Many times, maybe most often, the response you're going to get is, you're not supportive. You're not here for me. Don't you remember our wedding vows in sickness and in health? And and all of this stuff. And so it's like a conversation stopper. So, mm -hmm. so to put this into really tangible terms, when Sherry was just fed up and done and didn't trust me, and if she would say anything about trust to me, I would say, you know, fuck you. Look at what we agreed to. You can't do this. We are in this together. And, you know, you signed on to this. So, um, you know, the, the implied consent that I feel is right. You're the one that's wrong. So where do you go from there? And that's kind of an open-ended question. I don't know if either of you want to jump in on that, but it's, it's very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think it's, um, it is very difficult, but you know, I mean, the other side of that is, 
like you're not trustworthy so you violated the vows you know but then you get into a tit for tat thing and that's not going to get you anywhere but i mean you know from from the side of the person who's at the bottom of the slide and you know facing the disappointment of having because you don't want to be at the bottom of the slide you want to be in a place where you can trust the other person where you can feel that you've got a safe haven that you've got a partner that you've got all of that but um you know, if, if the trust has been lost, it's been lost. And yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I want to play with that analogy, like shoots and ladders and add like rust and nails. But if I'm at the bottom of, I'm at the bottom of the ladder and he's going, well, we're going this way. All that stuff that didn't happen, even though you, you just pushed me down the slide. And now I'm carrying all my baggage of what just happened. Now I have to go up this rickety ladder to even begin to go forward again, because I feel like you're not coming down for me. And you're screaming at the top going, I, I, I didn't push you. Well, I'm not going to push you again. Like that's, that's where I feel stuck. Cause it doesn't feel like you're ever going to come down here. And if I want to go forward, that means I got to go up but I don't trust that you're going to not push me down again. Especially since half the time he's like shaking the ladder and yelling at oh, you yeah. while you're doing And the this. whole thing's ready to fall apart anyway, right? Like, <laughs> there's not a stable foundation in sight. Yeah, it, it, an interesting kind of component of this. And I know that this isn't necessarily universal, but while all this is going on, while we're in two different places, One's gone down the chute. The other one's stayed, you know, stagnant where they are. Um, the We often, we as the alcoholic, don't see that this has happened. And not only do we not see that this has happened, but one of the partners is more consistent than the other. So again, to make this tangible so that listeners can understand what the hell I'm trying to say, Sherry, in our case, you were trustworthy. You, yes, there were times where my drinking would get us both elevated and we both said nasty, horrible things. We did sometimes scream about divorce at each other. Um, you know, it got really, really bad, but for the most part, you were stable and trustworthy and I was anything but. And so the fact that the, the trust only went one way in our relationship made it so easy for me to get over these big blowout fights and, you know, do the little, I'm doing the little wiping the dirt off my hands motion that's behind us. Now I want to love on you. I want uh, to talk about, you know, normal things because the trauma is behind me. Uh, I, I'm not worried about you doing that again to me. I'm not worried about you you know, drinking and causing all these disruptions because because you're not the the act that actor, right? You're not the person who's creating the chaos. And so I'm quick to to get back to trying to bond with you, whether that's physical contact, whether that's sex, whether that's you're a good mom and let's talk about your day. And the the one of the reasons that that we struggle as the drinkers to understand the impact of our drinking is because the relationship never gets shaky for us. I'm using the word never. I told you guys I wasn't going to use never or always. Sometimes the relationship doesn't get shaky for us. 
there was n- nothing that shook my trust in you, Sherry. Right. Um, whereas for you, everything shook the trust. Does that sound right to you? Yeah. And I think that I'm just going to point out that a lot of the times when I was elevated during really intense um, arguments, I could say some nasty things, but you were drunk and you didn't know and you didn't remember. So I could be unstable, but my instability and my crazy came out when you were blacked out into walking around and knew what was happening or I would, you would be passed out and I could tell you all the nasty things I wanted to tell you, but you had no recollection. Whereas for me, I had all the recollection. I had all the memories. I had every single word memorized and ingrained. So the perception that I was always safe or most always safe was probably so much easier for you to maintain because of the inebriation. Um, I think that I felt like I was not stable. I felt like in a lot of times I was not safe, not like I was going to act out on that, but just my own mental health. I felt like, like I was never much of a coddler. I never like, you know, I gave in sexually to try to soothe the beast, but I wasn't a hold your hand. We'll get through this. Good on you. I was more of a realist. And I don't know if you ever picked up on that. Oh yeah. I mean, that was one of the things that attracted me to you is that you were, a, you were spunky and, and so, kind of short tempered. So I know, and I know that there are a lot of, you know, partners, female partners out there and male partners out there that have an alcohol like that are very calm all the time. And so I kind of felt like I was the crazy one and I was a little unstable, but. This is such an interesting discussion about perception because I mean, there was never a time, even when you, when you would get really elevated, I'd be like, oh shit, I pushed it too far. Um, and I would take the, bl- you know, the blame for that. I might not have done that outwardly, but I would know because I was always in manipulation mode. How far can I push you? Uh, you know, how can I get you to blame yourself for what's going on here? And, you know, sometimes I would go too far and you would completely lose it. And I'd be like, oh, I shouldn't have pushed that button. But it was always kind of a manipulation for me. So I never took, I mean, there were a few times where you like threw stuff at me, right? Like a beer can or the plate of spaghetti. A plate of spaghetti. There was a time when you left me out in the car um, because I passed out in the passenger seat of the car. And it was like 11 o'clock in the morning. And it was like 110 degrees in the car before I woke up the next day and I had thrown up on myself. And so like that was about as aggressive, really, that was about as aggressive as you ever got. I'm sad that this is radio, not television, because Julia and Liz get to look at me pointing to the driveway where the car car was. I said full sun at that time, but no one knows that. That was the best. Um, And then I was like, I'm going to make sure the windows are up so those squirrels get in. But that's, I mean, that's, that's as aggressive as you ever got. I always, I, and we had, our lives were so intertwined with the business we own and the kids and the mortgage and all these things, that I never even really felt threatened that you were going to leave until the very end. When you, when you detached effectively, then I started to get scared. Mm -hmm. But so you were always this safe place for me, no matter what I did to become unsafe to you, you were always safe to me. But I know like when we were, when we were talking just a little bit before we started recording, I used the word always. The loved one is always a safe place. And Liz, you cautioned me about that and said, you know, always isn't the right word. It's not always the case. Sometimes the loved one becomes less safe as well. 
Absolutely. And um, in our case, that happened. It was, you know, right when we hit, you know, the, the maximum crisis point. And, you know, I just got to a point where I was resourceless and I basically betrayed my husband and had an emotional affair. And he told me at one point in time when we were trying to work through the crisis that that actually made it harder because he could no longer just put all the blame on himself. And, you know, it, it kind of burst the bubble of, you know, that, that perfect safe person. Um, and also, you know, it did mean he didn't know if he had a safe person. So like the last resource he thought he could trust in this world because he was in such bad shape, you know, had abandoned him. And, you know, I, having worked through my my issues you know now realize that like when things got bad for him and and then between us that that you know woke up all kinds of memories from my childhood trauma of not being able to trust anybody and you know he was somebody who I thought because we had you know some shared childhood histories that we could relate to that you know okay this is the one person who's not going to let me down because he knows what it feels like and then we got into the spiral with the alcohol so we got to a place where neither of us was very safe with for one another um in some ways though going back to the whole shoots and ladders thing and the safety and connection that might have been part of what made it a little i don't want to say easier because that's really not the right word but it gave us a starting point because neither of us was pushing the connection because we were both so scared of each other. And so we were kind of both back in square one and acknowledging that we were both back in square one. So that put us in a completely different situation than Julia's where one person's in square one and the other one's at square 98. You know, we were both at square one. And so, you know, kind of creeping forward with these tiny little steps of, you know, I, I think rather than it being safety or connection before the other, it was kind of like a half step of one and then a half a step another and then a half and, you know, until we finally reached a point where things are now a lot better. Um, but, you know, we got to a place where certainly neither of us was safe. We were stuck in a house together. You know, <laughs> it was locked down um, and it was it was yeah, it was not good. I think that is completely fascinating. I know your story. I've known your, I mean, we, we've known you for quite a while now and you've been very open about what's gone on, but this is the first time and thanks in large part to your shoots and ladders analogy that I've ever thought of it this way. I've always thought that the emotional affair is a negative component of what happened in your story. And it, it still is. It's that's a negative. That's not. I'm not trying to sugarcoat that. But yeah, the not, fact let's, that let's that not encourage you, people to do yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But the the fact that that pushed you down a chute too, or hit, uh, pardon me, pushed him down a chute too, so that you're both at the bottom and you're starting from the same place for the rebuild. At least you know it's a terrible, traumatic, awful place. But at least you're in the same room with each other. That's that's fascinating. I've never thought of even the silver lining of that dark cloud before. That's really interesting. The, um, the, the other thing that really kind of stood out to me when you were, when you were talking about that is, well, you, you, you said this earlier and, and I want to highlight it because it's not something I necessarily understand. So I'm, I'm hoping you can 
help me understand. You talked about the fact that you came into the relationship, maybe not thinking safety is possible to begin with. And you said that's something you wanted to, to go back to. Um, I know we all have different childhood experiences and all of our childhood experiences are very impactful. So you grew up in an environment where you didn't have that safe place. And so you didn't have that expectation when you came into marriage. Am I understanding that right? Yeah, I grew up with a really volatile, angry father. Um, and there was absolutely no knowing what would set him off. On top of that, I have a, a mentally ill aunt. So, you know, I had very much gotten used to in that circumstances of, you know, you creep around and you basically just duck and cover and try and, you know, not attract attention, certainly not negative attention. So, you know, I, I was very much the good girl and didn't, you know, could not allow myself to not follow the rules and all of that because the consequences could be really extreme. And sometimes the consequences were really extreme for like ridiculously small things. So I had absolutely no experience of, you know, what safety in the family environment was like. So the fact that I should even be thinking that somebody else could be um, providing safety to me, like that, that just was not where I was in the relationships I went into. I just assumed that I would have to look out for myself and that the other person, you know, was not someone to be counted upon and should be looked at with a certain amount of suspicion at all times. And, you know, that colored all of my relationships. And then I met somebody who came, you know, from a very similar, I mean, the, the, the parallels, like the detailed parallels between our childhoods are really quite incredible. And we could actually relate to one another because, you know, we both had that kind of turbulence and volatility and lack of safety. And so, you know, we kind of had this agreement that we were going to try to do better. You know, we could do better than they had done. Um, and we did for a long time until the alcohol started to get a lot better. And then I think what happened is we both just kind of um, went back to our kind of pre-programmed trauma responses. And those just, you know, almost ripped us apart because, you know, he started to get angry, which was exa exactly the last thing I needed. And, you know, him getting angry took me right back to the abandonment and the unsafe place. So I started to pull away and my pulling away just made him more scared and more angry and, you know, want to drink more. And it, you know, it just becomes a downward spiral. I can't believe how much work you've done in such a short period of time to understand what happened to the, to the level that you do. I, I know that, I mean, I can remember when I was in the, the low of the lows when depression and anxiety was a huge part of my story. And, and, you know, if, if we had experienced, if Sherry had had an emotional affair, Oh my God, I don't, I don't know if I would have survived that quite literally. So going back to the point that you made that we're not suggesting that this is a solution. I just, I want to commend you both on the, the progress that you've made digging out of that hole because you know, for us, Sherry was always the safe place. I was the unsafe one. But even though we were both being dragged into this terrible, terrible place, she was always mental health wise doing better than I was. Um, and so I, I don't think I had much room to go before I was at a, in a really, you know, something bad would have happened. Yeah. So I, I think it's fascinating how much progress that you've made. Well, I think it's 
commendable in a lot of ways. 100%. I love, I love the analogy. And when you were talking about being at square one, I think in your situation, a lot of people would close the board and stop playing the game and walk away. And it is just so impressive and how much work the two of you have put into your own selves and now rebuilding the relationship. Like truly it is a success story. And it's something that I think that is very aspirational for even Matt and I in a lot of ways to like going back, like you said, you fell back into those childhood trauma responses, how quickly we can do that. You know, even in early sobriety, when he's working on himself and I'm working on myself, we could get ourselves back in a dark hole really quickly with one argument that could go real ugly real quick. So yeah. I think that's a really good point to, to be aware, to be self-aware that you can fall back into those trauma responses yeah. when you're dealing with this. The last kind of subtopic of this bigger topic that we want to talk about, I'm going to overuse a word. I know that's Sherry's favorite thing. It's not insidious, Sherry. I'm not going to say insidious. Any more than the two times I heard he did. Um, but it's, we're going to use the word inherent. There is guilt inherent in the detachment that's necessary for the health of the loved one, for the health of the spouse, and sometimes helpful for the health of the alcoholic. Again, to ground this in reality so that, you know, we're not just using big lofty words or not big words, but we're giving a concrete example for Sherry and I, um, we got to the point, Sherry, you got to the point where you didn't want to hear about the rules I was going to put around my drinking. You didn't want to hear about what I was reading about sobriety. You didn't want to hear about how nutrition could help me stay sober and, and recovered, which is very true. Um, you didn't want to hear about brain chemistry. You were just done with me and you detached. You didn't detach because you read it in a book. You detached because that felt like the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, but it, by detaching, even though it was not only a healthy thing for you to do, but it was also, it, it is one of the two things that pushed me over the edge into permanent sobriety because I said, oh my God, she doesn't care anymore. This is terrible. We've talked about that a lot. We're not going to talk about that anymore today. Even though it was good for me, um, it was still really hard for me and really painful for me. And I made that well known to you that I feel like I'm not being supported. You know, why are you so cold? This is awful. Mm -hmm. Did you feel any guilt? Is that so when you detach like that for you, was there guilt inherent in that detachment, even though you knew it was the right thing to do? Well, by the time I think I learned to really detach, I had, like you said, I was done. So no, I didn't have any guilt that time. I really didn't have any guilt. I felt like there wasn't like tension in the air and you were kind of mopey or whatever. And I don't feel like it put anything out to the kids. I don't think they really noticed because I was cordial. I was polite. I was talking to you about the things that needed to be talked about. I didn't feel guilt at all this time. When I had tried in the past, I was terrible about feeling guilty and feeling like I wasn't doing the right thing. Um, or, you know, but then I, I guess, because I had learned that if I gave you an inch, you would take a mile. So by the time I really detached, I was done and no guilt. 
I felt better. Like I wasn't dragging myself down, worried about your emotions. And that was the hardest thing. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's really important that we understand the difference between getting to the point where detachment is natural. It's necessary. You know, when you know it's time to do it versus I read this in a book and I'm going to try it. Not to say you shouldn't try it because it, mm-hmm. you know, we got to learn somehow, but if you detach because you read it in a book and your heart's not in, in it, then I think that's where the guilt can creep in. Julia, you talked about giving connection, even when you didn't feel safe, because you hoped that that would lead to something. And then you talked about times where you didn't give the connection because that felt like the right thing to do. Did you ever feel guilt when you didn't give the connection? Can you, does guilt play into your, your story at all? Mm -hmm. I think, I think like Sherry said in the beginning, it was really hard because there's also some shame in the fact that I had created this situation where I helped clean up all the consequences for, you know, a decade. So I had created this expectation for him where home and my wife is the place that is safe. Right. So like when I took that away, that was like the ultimate threat for him because, you know, codependency in these relationships goes both ways. So he had not created any community outside of his small little family and we moved all the time. So when I let go and detached, he had nobody, nothing. And that created the start of the darkest spiral that he went down and so there was definitely some like guilt that I caused that, you know, but like being in this unmanageable, unthinkable problem with, you know, 20 different directions of how people tell you how to fix it. And you do this thing and then it all blows up in your face. You, I mean, I did struggle with guilt and I felt like a horrible person. Because it gets way worse before it gets better, right? And feeling like you have a hand in that sucks. It really sucks. And it took a a lot of work for me to let that go. um, Because I think that built a resentment in him, too. That's a really good point about how it gets way worse before it gets better. I've, I've heard you share that with other people who are new to boundaries, new to, to detachment. And you've been quick to say, Oh, uh, they're not going to like that at all. That thing that you're doing, that thing that's really important. And that's the right thing to do. They're going to fucking hate it. And they're going to push back hard. And so, you know, you got to be prepared to go through that really traumatic, awful situation. So, um, I've always really appreciated the honesty and the way that you've shared that with people. Um, so let, let's get even more detailed into when we talk about the guilt piece, the guilt that's inherent in detachment. Um, often one of the things that happens, it's not just emotional detachment, it's, it's a physical detachment and there is a, a lack of sex involved. Um, and this can come, this is really complicated. This can come from either side. Sometimes the alcoholic 
it doesn't want that physical contact anymore either. Sometimes it's the loved one that says, I just can't give that anymore because, uh, you know, I, I, I don't feel like it's a safe place. The trust is broken. I can't give my body. Um, and so I, I think for as unspeakable as this topic is, we still hear enough from people about it. That makes me think, there is a lot going on and that this is going on one way or the other in most relationships. Um, the other piece of this, and I think this is why sometimes the alcoholic pulls away is because there, I'm going to use my inherent word again, there is rejection inherent in, in consent. And what I mean by that, again, grounding this in our personal experience, Sherry, our as we were going through the worst of it, and as we were coming out in recovery, we did have periods where we didn't have any physical contact. We were trying to heal and we thought that that would be for the best. So we did try that. But for the most part, we remained sexually active. And I learned in sobriety, I couldn't see this when I was drinking because I was drunk some of the time or most, or I was, you know, inebriated. I was, Alcohol was part of my life, um, whether I was drunk or not, and I couldn't see it. But when you would consent to uh, sexual contact, but there was no intimacy for you, you didn't want to be there. You didn't want to be doing this. And it was very clear um, by the way you you acted during the act that became incredibly unfulfilling to me. It, I began to see that it was a one-way street and I just felt terrible. And I never imagined that intimacy was so important to me. And I'm not talking about sexual intimacy. I'm talking about emotional intimacy. You being into it was super important to me. And I didn't realize that um, until I woke up enough to see that you weren't into it. And it just felt dirty and wrong and unfulfilling. And I feel like from the side of the alcoholic that's why often the physical contact does dry up when we're the one that initiates it drying up because that starts to just feel awful and so i you don't want to have sex with me well guess what i don't want to have sex with you either can you talk sherry a little bit about what that part of it was like for you um again i'm saying that the rejection inherent in your consent felt bad for me. How bad did it feel for you during that period? And was, was, was giving in and having sex before I came to this epiphany, was that a way to avoid guilt for not having sex or were you just trying to pacify me or what was that all about? Um, I think it was just pacify. I didn't very rarely did I feel guilty about not wanting to have sex with you. Um, I think it was just to avoid an argument, pacify, also to think because there's all these years of saying, I need your physical contact. I need your touch. This will be the connection. This will make me feel better. This is going to help me feel better. All those words that you've said over the years that, you know, it was kind of like, okay, well, that's just what my body's going to do. And either it's going to give him instant gratification or it's going to calm him down and fall asleep. There won't be an argument, you know, so there was every scenario you can imagine in there. 
It goes, it goes back to what we talked about with Julie at the very beginning about how you learn as a female in our society Mm -hmm. to pacify men and the transactional nature of physical contact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Did you ever miss the intimate connection that we had very early on in our relationship? And I mean, I feel like I drank that away pretty quickly. Yeah. But, but you used to want to be with me when we were first together. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, when. No, I didn't miss it because I don't remember it quite honestly. I, too much stuff. I mean, I think humans, we remember the bad stuff for self-protection and, you know, sometimes you try to glom onto the good and you remember. And I mean, and other people are probably better at that because I'm a pessimist. So no, I didn't miss, you know, the sex or the desire to have sex. I missed what could have happened or what could have been. I think you're right. Pretty early on in the relationship, you were arrogant enough to act like the things that I was interested in, in the bedroom were not at all like what people do. You know, I'm not saying I'm crazy and out there, but you tried to act like you knew it all. Yeah. You also didn't like the fact that I had more experience with relationships that involve sex than you did. So anytime I would talk about, I think there was a jealousy or resentment um, in you that you just couldn't really talk about or recognize. And maybe you don't recognize it. So, you know, whatever I thought would feel good. You're like, "Mm, no, because that's not what I learned. I am impressed that you just said that you I didn't have to drag you. Yeah into saying that you wow you're getting good at this at this opening up uh even on this tough yes. tough topic yeah but uh yeah i think uh i think it dried up pretty quickly yeah liz or julia do either of you want to weigh in on the this idea of guilt inherent in a lack of physical contact or the rejection inherent in consent yeah i think um you know, quickly, because it's been a while. But, um, you know, I think the reason that, you know, that kind of consent feels so yucky, you know, and feels yucky to both parties, honestly, is because it isn't really consent. It's consent in the legal sense of the term, but not in the emotional sense of the term. You're not actually consenting. You're just don't think you can say no. What you're doing is you're not respecting your own boundaries, actually. And so it feels pretty yucky. Um, I think in our case, that wasn't as much of an issue because um, I was really interested in sex. I wanted to have sex with him, but it wasn't working so well. And then the thing is, like, we'd have drunken sex and he'd just because, you know, fine motor skills are one of the first things that go away when you start drinking. And so there would be times where, like, he would want to embrace me passionately and what he would actually be doing is strangling me. And, you know, so it was like, it was more of a frustration for me because theoretically I did want to have sex with him, but it just, you know, it was just such a painful, awkward experience most of the time because it either didn't work or, you know, I was like being basically, you know, with a boa constrictor. And so it just, um, you know, so I think there was more of a frustration than a guilt on my part. And, and, and then it got complicated between us too, because then it got into, you know, this sort of me being 
getting very feminist about, you know, why is it always the woman's responsibility for, you know, birth control, because I was having issues with reacting to like, you know, hormonal treatments and this, that and the other thing. And so, you know, I kind of got to a thing, especially because, you know, we decided not to have kids. So then it's like, well, you know, then why don't we just do a permanent solution? And of course, that would be yours to do. And so that became a whole thing. So I think ours was a way more complicated situation than the one you've described. So, but a different situation. And mine's even more different than that. So same, same situation, except alcohol stole desire for him because he just drank and then passed out. And so in my upbringing, sex was connection. And so I would try so hard to to interrupt that cycle of drink pass out with sex and that rejection because alcohol won over and over and over again that was huge and then you know as a woman you fight with those like what's wrong with me feelings like that you can't pause yes to, like, yeah to to do that and then I ended up trying to interject, right? And like use that, but it it felt internally like I was manipulating. Like I have to work so hard to like get this connection and get your attention from this other thing. And we often say that alcohol is the mistress and that's exactly how it feels in that moment. And if you do that enough times, you're just, you've, I felt like desperate and I don't like that feeling, right? And I don't like being rejected either. Um, and, you know, over and over again, when alcohol wins, you just kind of numb out to it. And so then I stopped trying and then just stopped. Yeah, I share that, Julia. It was like, you know, your own sense of femininity and desirability gets undermined by this, you know, and if you were enough of a woman, you could, you'd be more attractive and, and you lose. And so it definitely undermines your sense of self-worth. You always lose to alcohol. Yeah, mm-hmm. not a fair fight. This is just fascinating. I mean, three stories that have a lot of similarities, and I mean a lot of similarities. But in this particular area, this unspoken area, the area that that where people usually, I mean, let's be honest, usually clam up and and the discussion ends. We've had we have three different scenarios, um, but but you know, the topics are the same though, right? Rejection, um, just how it feels when it's not working, uh, one way or the other, how unfulfilling things are when there's no intimacy. Um, certainly everyone on this call can relate to, uh, the kind of slobbery boa constrictor sex that Liz talked about and how just nobody wants to be a part of that. Um, so I just, I think it's, is that where snakes and ladders came from yeah you said it's regional it's just in your house is where snakes and ladders takes place no it might be british i don't know i know it exists but Uh, yeah oh that's that's great well i would like to tell you that i have this awesome ending planned but i had no idea where this conversation was going to go so i don't i think the uh the big takeaways besides the the um, shoots and ladders analogy that I don't think anyone will ever forget um, 
is is just how complex and difficult it is and how uh, having people to work through it with is really important. Knowing that you're not alone, knowing that there's nothing wrong with you. Um, this just sucks. Maybe that should be the title of this episode. Or this just sucks. What Julia said, alcohol wins. Yeah. Yeah. And it gets way worse before yeah. it gets better. Now I'm just recycling my notes. Thank you both for being here. This was fantastic. I, I, I hope, I hope that people, you know, stuck through the, it's a difficult conversation. And I think if somebody had never experienced alcoholism, listen to this, they'd be like, what are these four people talking about? I don't have it. I don't understand. But if you have experienced it and it has impacted your relationship, I know there are nuggets in here um, that you can really, really relate to. So Liz, Julia, thank you so much for taking the time and having this difficult conversation with us. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Loving the round table format. It's really great. So thanks. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.